And I'm so glad that you're here today as we try to wrap up our sermon series on the book of Job. I got a little confused last week and told you uh, that we were through with it. Well, we're not. I had one more to go. Well, we're still in the book of Job. It's an amazing book. I've had fun in this sermon series, and believe it or not, I've learned a lot. Studying for this sermon series has opened my eyes to a whole lot of things from the book of Job. How many else have enjoyed this uh, message series? Anybody? One thing I want to look at today is how often we as people change our minds. How many times have you changed your mind about a certain thing? How we once saw something one way and later saw it a different way. It might sound like this. It might say, well, I thought that was wrong, but now I think it's right. I used to not like that, but now I kind of like that. Or people ought not to do that, but now I think it's okay if they do that. We change our minds. We're people, right? And over time, as we hear and see more and more, the more we change our minds. And when it comes to God, let me just tell you, in my walk with God, almost 40 years in my walk with God, since I accepted Christ into my heart, He has changed some things. He has changed a lot of things. And I'll just say this. You can't literally, genuinely walk with Christ and not be changed. If you're genuinely walking with Christ, you're going to be changed. Once He's done with us, once our life has run its course, then He calls us home to heaven. But during your spiritual journey, life here on this earth, He's constantly making changes. He's constantly tweaking us. He's constantly changing us, rearranging us, Actually, to be more like him. In Job 42, verse 12, this has been the main scripture that we've looked at through this whole sermon series. It says that the Lord blessed the latter part, the last half of Job's life, more than he did the first part of Job's life. Job was a blessed man. Even though he went through so much, he was still a blessed man. Today, we're going to learn and talk about if you want to be blessed, if I want to be blessed, and you want to be blessed, we've got to start seeing people the way God sees people. If you want to be blessed, you've got to start seeing people the way Jesus sees people. In Job 1.1 again, it says, In the land of Uz, there was a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. This is all we know about his seven sons or three daughters in the beginning. Because he immediately goes into verse 3. And he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. And in verse 4, it starts out saying his sons. And don't miss this. Most scholars believe that the book of Job is actually the oldest book in the Bible. Some say, no, it's Genesis because Genesis is in the beginning. Well, the Bible wasn't laid out in chronological order. It's the book of Job. And back in the book of Job... Women were not given the freedom or the appreciation or the respect that women get today. In fact, thousands of years ago, women were treated more as property than they were as people. And it wasn't until Christianity came along, Jesus steps into the picture and starts telling us husbands to love our wives as Christ loves the church, that women all of a sudden start having value. Back in Job's day, too, they didn't talk much about women and the daughters. In fact, if you had daughters, they were kind of looked down on. Parents wanted to have sons, not only to help out on the farm, but they wanted to have sons so they could pass on their inheritance to their sons. 
women hardly ever, if ever, received an inheritance. So in this text I'm about to read, Job's sons, they're often holding feasts in their homes. Not the daughters, but the sons are holding feasts. They invite their sisters to come. But look at verse 4. It says, His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting would run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. And if you remember throughout our whole series, when chapter 2 hits, all hell breaks loose in Job's life. He loses his health. He loses his wealth. His ten children die. His marriage falls apart. Everything in his life falls apart. And then in chapter 3, to help things out, his legalistic church friends show up, start condemning him, actually trying to give him advice, but are really accusing Job. And God lets them ramble and ramble and ramble for several chapters. And then finally God steps in and says, Job, you've got to get a little bit tougher. He says, gird up your loins. And Job has an experience with God like he's never experienced before. And this experience that he has with God changes Job, and it changes the way he looks at people, changes the way he views people. Look at Job 42, verse 12 again. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. If you weren't doing the math there from the first set of kids uh, uh, from chapter 1... God has doubled up in the end what Job had lost. He's given him twice as much back. Verse 13. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. So God blesses him with ten more children. The first daughter he named Jemima. Let me stop there and say she's got to have an aunt somewhere. Amen? (laughs) Anybody getting hungry for pancakes about now? The amazing thing about this whole thing. Something happened between Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 42. In Job chapter 1, we don't even get the names of his daughters. Amen? In Job chapter 42, we do. In Job chapter 1, the daughters don't get an inheritance. In Job chapter 42, they do. I think I've skipped something here. I forgot to read about his second and third daughter. Amen? Well, Job's not done. The second, Keziah, and the third, Kareen Hapuk. I don't know if that's right or not, but Kareen Hapuk. Nowhere in all the land were found women as beautiful as Job's daughters. And this next part is huge. And the father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. That's when I need to say something changed between Job 41 and 42. uh, Job 1 and 42. I'll get on track here in a minute. Just pray for me. Amen. But in Job 1, we don't get the names of the daughters. In Job 42, we do. In Job chapter 1, we don't see where the daughters get an inheritance. In Job chapter 42, everything changes. And you know why it changes? I believe it's because Job starts to see people the way Jesus sees people. I believe he starts to see his own daughters the way Jesus sees people. How many know the closer you walk with Jesus, the more you're going to see people the way God sees people? The longer you walk and the closer you walk with Christ, the more you're going to see people the way that Jesus genuinely sees people. There are over 7 billion people in this world today, and there's one thing I know about every one of them. They need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. They need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And I'm sure some of you are sitting here saying, well, uh, that might be great, but I can't tell them all. God didn't ask you to tell them all, but he asked us to each do our own part. Today I want to look at Luke chapter 15 real quick. 
And if you've ever been in the church world any time at all, you know this story. It's a classic flannel graph story, but look how it starts out. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners. Notice the distinction there. Tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors were actually considered to be worse sinners than sinners. The tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers, the religious people of the law, muttered, this man, and they're talking about Jesus, welcomes sinners and he eats with them. In fact, one of the major cutdowns on Jesus was that he was a friend of sinners. Can you imagine that being one of the worst things they could say about you? That you are a friend of sinners. You know, that makes me feel pretty good, though. Because if he wasn't a friend of sinners, he wouldn't have been my friend. And if he wasn't a friend of sinners, he wouldn't have been your friend either. Think about that. We ought to appreciate that a little bit more. When we understand that he saved us and what that means, we ought to want that for every other person on, in this earth. Amen? In this world. So Jesus is doing ministry not like everybody else is doing ministry. He's doing it in such an unconventional way that he's got notorious sinners following him. He's got the tax collectors. He's got the uh, sinners of sinners collect, uh, collecting or joining around him. And when you do that, guess what's going to happen? The same thing that happened here. The religious people are going to come out and accuse you of compromising the gospel. They're going to accuse you of preaching an untrue gospel. So Jesus tells them this story that I know everyone's familiar with, chapter or verse 3. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one lost sheep until he finds it? I want to stop here because we're Americans. Most of us would probably say, heck no, forget that sheep. That dumb sheep wandered off. He got lost himself. We've got 99 more. What are we worried about? Well, the shepherds back in that day didn't see things like that. These sheep were actually their livelihood. They were so close to their sheep that they, ever, they knew everyone by name. So I'm just going to guess... And I think I'm pretty accurate that everyone in this crowd that Jesus is talking to in this text, in the Bible here, would have said, yes, we would have left the 99 and gone after the one. Look at verse 5. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Can you see the value that Jesus is placing on the one lost sheep? Can you see the value that Jesus is placing on the one lost sinner who repents and comes to him? Well, he goes on in verse 8. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? Once again, we as Americans would probably say, what's the big deal? It's only one coin. You've still got nine left. That one coin, I found out, was equal to one day's wage. So to this poor widow, it was a big deal. Verse 9, and when she finds it, she calls her friends and her neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. And look what Jesus says in verse 10. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. When I hear that, I can see Jesus proclaiming and declaring when only one person comes to me. Hey, boys, get ready in heaven. We're throwing a party. Amen. We're having a celebration. So today I want to bring out four things from this text that I think are so important. 
If we want to have an impact on our world for Christ, number one, if you're taking notes, we've got to see what God sees. We've got to see what God sees the way God sees it. Let me just tell you, Victory, I have a big vision for Victory Church. I believe that we are called to reach the multitudes in our surrounding area. I've said it many times that we represent 21 different communities. I believe with all of my heart victory that we need to get beyond these church walls and reach people that don't know Jesus. I believe we, do, we ought to do anything short of sinning to reach people for Christ. I believe we ought to get out there and do whatever it takes because the people outside of these walls, and there are multitudes, and I'm not saying take one from that church and bring them to our church. I'm saying go out to the highways and the byways and compel those that have never invited Jesus Christ into their heart to come, to meet Him maybe for the first time, to come to know that there is a real God that loves them, that really did give His life for them. So we've got to see people the way Jesus sees people. The problem is we tend to categorize people. I'll go back to my high school days. Some of you are from my generation. We had the heads over here, and we had the reds over here, right? The heads, the druggies, and we had the rednecks over here. We had the smokers, and we had the jocks. We had all these uh, categories out there. We had the artsy-fartsy people, amen? We had all these different categories, and by the way, let me pick up another one. How many of you are morning people? Do I have any morning people in the house? Be honest. How many anti-morning people do I have in the house? Don't you want to strangle those morning people? Amen. But here's the deal. You've got to get this. If we're going to reach the world for Christ, we can categorize people all day long, but there's only one category that matters. There's only one category that we need to focus on, lost or saved. Lost or saved? Have you, have you met Jesus or have you not met Jesus? Don't tell me about their past. Don't even tell me about their sexual preference. Don't tell me about their occupation. Don't tell me about their age. Uh, uh, the only category that matters, are you saved or are you lost? Are they saved or are they lost? Every person we lock eyes with every day, are you saved or lost? Every person you go to work with tomorrow, are you saved or lost? Every person you go to school with tomorrow, are you saved or lost? Some might say, well, what's wrong with being lost? Well, I'll give you three main things. The first one, when you're lost, you're in sin. The Bible does say we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all sin, but how many know it's a whole lot easier to point at other people's sins and not even see our own? Sin's the first one about being lost. second one is separation, and that separation is a separation from God because we're in sin. We were born into sin. Have you realized that? You didn't have to teach your kids how to sin, right? They knew how to do it. Nobody had to teach us how to sin. We knew how to do it. We were born that way. Paul said it before Lady Gaga said it. We were born that way, amen? We were born sinful, and we were separated from God. The third thing is, when you're lost, it's going to lead to a whole lot of suffering, here and now. It's not very popular, but let me break the news to you gently. There is a real place called hell. There is a real place called hell, and people that don't know Jesus are going to end up there someday. You know, I've never went to a funeral where anybody went to hell. Everybody goes to heaven. Nobody goes to hell. Everybody goes to heaven. But that's not reality. There are going to be some people that leave this earth and don't make heaven their home. That's just a reality. That's why we've got to be on the ball. But statistics show me that 62%... 
that only 62% of Christians believe in hell, but 99% of Christians believe in heaven. Think about that. 62% believe in hell, 99% believe in heaven. Do you know Jesus taught about hell? He actually taught a lot about hell. He actually taught more about hell than he did heaven in the Bible. He talked about people that don't know him, that leave this world without him, are going to go to hell. They're separated from God. They're going to spend an eternity there. And if I didn't believe that, really believe that deep down in my spirit, my heart, I'd quit my job today. Because it would all be in vain. Why would we be here? Why would I be here doing what I'm doing? We need to see people one of two ways, lost or saved. Every person we lock eyes with every day is going to spend an eternity in heaven or hell. So number one, if we're going to have an impact for Christ in this world, we've got to see what God sees. And number two, we've got to feel what God feels. If you want to make an impact on the lives of people around you, you've got to feel what God feels. Have you ever thought about how far phones have come uh, in our history? I mean, how many remember the first phone, telephone that I remember? The uh, rotary dial phone. Anybody remember that big black box that used to sit on your table? You could barely hold it up. Your phone con conversations were short because you could hardly endure the weight. But I remember it had this huge rotary dial on it with these big numbers, and you just go, Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. But remember when we upgraded to the touch-tone phone? We thought that was space age. I mean, you could even play a melody while you're dialing somebody. Anyway, uh, we thought that was so cool. How many remember the days when you actually had to memorize a phone number? Anybody remember the days when you either had to write it down or look it up in a phone book? Today, what do we do? Pull out our cell phone, scroll through the names, push the name, and it automatically dials the number. Probably not hardly any of us remember any phone numbers in here. Uh, my wife, Cheryl, uses her phone for everything her calendar, her contacts, and if she loses her phone, she loses her dang mind. How many are like that? I know some of you are like that because some of you have called me in the wee hours of the night saying, Pastor, I left my phone at the church. I need to get in the church to get my phone. It doesn't matter that you left your Bible there six months ago. You got to get your phone. Amen. <laughs> and you can always tell when somebody loses their phone. I mean, they come in there with this crazy look in their eye. They're digging through their pockets, digging through uh, things, looking around everywhere. And then when it dawns on them where they might have left it, they dash out of the room. It's all because they've lost something valuable. And when you lose something valuable, it changes everything. And when it comes to God, do you know that people were so valuable to God that he didn't just sit idly by in heaven? and do nothing. No, he sent his son Jesus Christ to come to die on a cross for our sins. And the longer we're in a relationship with God, the more we ought to feel about people the way God feels about people. You know, there are probably people in this room, you've gone to church most of your life. But the sad thing is, maybe some of us have never really felt about people the way God feels about people that are far from Him. You realize that when you're in a relationship, a genuine relationship with somebody, you start caring about what they care about? You realize that? I know my BC days, and I mean before Cheryl. <laughs> my BC days, if I passed a horse, I didn't give it a second look. I didn't know anything about horses. I didn't care to know anything about horses. I didn't care if I ever rode a horse. But when I met my wife, Cheryl, who loves horses... Things started to change. 
In fact, the second week of our dating relationship, she invites me over to Brown County, Indiana to go on a trail ride, which I'd never been on in my life. Well, I lost the best pair of, my, the, the best pair of sunglasses I ever had, had because of that dumb horse I was on. A horse fly got after my horse, and it was jumping around, and my glasses went one way, and I went the other. That was a dumb horse. <laughs> Fast forward to today. And actually, we've had our horses at home for 15 years. I've got two horses at home that I dearly love. We don't ride them much. They're my big pets. They're my buddies. They're my lawn ornaments. <laughs> Things change when you're in a relationship with somebody. All of a sudden, you start caring about what they care about. Because my wife loved horses, I grew to love horses. And I said all that to say, do you know our relationship with Jesus Christ ought to be the same way? Not about horses, but about people. Amen? Because Jesus loves and cares about people, we ought to love and care for people. And one thing we need to realize about people that are spiritually lost, they're not our enemy. We don't need to protest them. We don't need to boycott them. We don't need to feel like we have to change their behavior. The Bible says we're called to be agents of reconciliation. And bring the gospel to this world that is desperate for the gospel. To bring the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, to this world that's desperate for Jesus. So number two, we need to feel what Jesus feels if we're going to have an impact on this world. And the last one is we need to do what God says. If you begin to see what God sees, feel what God feels, you're going to begin to do what God says. You know the amazing thing was when Jesus first started calling his disciples... Look at the people he called. It wasn't the perfect people. It wasn't the holy, righteous people. It wasn't the smart uh, people out there, the scholars. He went after the lost causes. And who were his first lost causes? One of them was Peter. Another one was James and John. And if you don't know what was happening in that day, whenever uh, kids were about five years old, their parents would send them off to school, and they would be taught from years five to ten the uh, first five books of the Bible. They had to memorize the books of Moses. Pretty amazing. But then the best students of the best students went on for the second level of education where they had to memorize the entire Old Testament. 39 books of the Old Testament. Pretty amazing. But those kids that didn't make it, they were told to go home. You're kind of a lost cause. Do what your dad did for a living. Do, uh, follow his occupation. So when I think about that, when Jesus calls Peter, James, and John, what were they doing? Fishing. They were fishing. Guess what their dads did? They were fishing, fishermen. Let me tell you what that tells me is the world looked at them and said, you guys are a bunch of lost causes. Go do what your dad did because you're not smart enough, you're not good enough. I am so thankful that Jesus went after the lost causes and said, follow me, and he transformed their lives. He transferred in their lives and used, and used them to impact the world in a way this world has never been impacted before. I want to say this today. I am so glad that Jesus goes after the lost causes because I definitely was a lost cause. And not to hurt your feelings, but you all were lost causes too. We were all lost causes. And my prayer is today, after you hear this message, that we'll leave this place today. And when we go into work tomorrow, we go into school tomorrow, we go into our neighborhoods tomorrow, maybe even the grocery store tomorrow... We're not going to see people as lost causes. We're going to see people as opportunities to share the gospel and the love of Jesus Christ with everyone that we meet. That's what God's heart is for people. That ought to be our heart for people. Jesus went after the outcast. How many remember the story in John chapter 4? 
where Jesus goes out of his way to meet with a Samaritan woman at a well. This woman had a scandalous reputation. She had been married and divorced five different times, and the sixth guy she was with, she was just shacking up with. She wasn't even married to this guy. Jesus kind of lovingly reads her mail. He knows all about her. He reveals himself as the Messiah and transforms her life. She was an outcast, and Jesus went after her. She was a lost cause, according to the world standards, and Jesus went after her. You know, people are lost causes and outcasts to the world, but they're not to Jesus. He goes after the outcast. So that person at work with that scandalous reputation, that girl at school with that scandalous reputation, one thing I know about her, she has a soul and she matters to God. One thing I know about them, they have a soul and they matter to God. So if they matter to God, they ought to matter to us. Those people that seem to be outcast in our lives, God has deliberately put them across your path for you to share Christ with that person. Do you realize that? For you to invite that person to church, for you to share the love of God with that person. So I'm going to challenge you this morning, as you're hearing this message, how about stepping up? Determining in your heart, I'm going to invite somebody to church. And I know it's hard. I know it's scary. You're thinking they might say no. They might reject me. They might make fun of me. But talking to them about the weather is not going to change anything. Talking about Friday night's football game is not going to change anything. But you start talking about Jesus, it could change everything. Here today and forever. And you better believe there's a spiritual battle going out on out there to try to keep you from sharing the gospel of Christ with everyone you meet. But I'm just asking you to take a bold step of faith. First, pray about it. Make sure God's in it. God's leading the way. Step up and invite someone to church. Ask somebody to come to church that needs to feel the love of God. Ask somebody to come to church that needs to know Him because Jesus put that person across your path for you to lead them to Him. It was no accident. What are we going to do with that? And it doesn't matter if they said no before. It's worth another try. Amen? Think about this in 2 Peter verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 9. It says, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promises. How many know He always keeps His promises? He's not slow in keeping His promises as under, some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I think it's worth another invite. Amen? Because people need to meet Christ. And my last point, if we're going to have an impact on people, we need to celebrate like God celebrates. I believe our God is a celebrating God. You may not see him that way, but he is a celebrating God. And I know we all love to celebrate. But I want you to remember one thing. The things that we celebrate on this side of eternity are only temporary. They're only here for a while, then they're gone. But look again in Luke 15. It says, The angels in heaven rejoice when one sinner, one sinner repents of his or her ways. That's a celebration I'm looking for. Amen? Are you looking for that celebration? That's a celebration I'm looking for. And I don't know about you, but this world isn't my home. One day I'm going to a whole lot better place. And one day when I get there, I'm going to see loved ones that have gone on before me in the faith. I'm going to see my dad again. I'm going to see my grandpa and my grandma again. I'm going to see friends and family members that love Jesus and had given their heart to Christ, and we're going to have a celebration. We're going to have a party in heaven. One day I'm not going to be here. It may be two years from now, it may be ten years from now, or twenty years from now. But one day when I get there, we're going to have a party. 
And there are people in your family members that have gone on before us. I believe they're celebrating in heaven right now. And that's a celebration we all ought to be looking forward to. But Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, look what it says. After this, John says, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. So there are going to be people there that don't speak like we do. There are going to be people there with different color of skin than we have. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now that's a party. That's a celebration. And I don't know about, yes, I do know about you. We want to be a part of that celebration. Amen? And we want to take everybody with us that we can take to enjoy the celebration. It's impossible to say that you love someone if you don't really care about where they're spending eternity. Do you realize that? It's impossible to walk genuinely with Christ and not care about people the way He cares about people. This whole series has been on Job, and Job went through hell on earth. His whole world was rocked. His whole world was turned upside down. But I think I said it in the first week. Job said at the end of the story, God, I thought I knew you before all this happened, but now I know you. God made such changes in Job's life through the hardships that he went through, the trials and the tests and the troubles. And he started caring for things that didn't used to matter. He started caring for people that didn't necessarily matter before. Jesus cares about people that are far from him. That's his chief priority. That's his chief chief heartbeat. That's what Jesus is all about. And he came here to be a friend of sinners. Aren't you glad he came to be a friend of sinners? I'm so glad he came to be my friend so that I might know him, so that we might know him. That's who he is. That's his heart. And I believe with all of my heart that he wants that to be our heart for people. Could you stand to your feet this morning? I want you to think, who is it at your workplace? Who is it at your school? Who is it in your neighborhood or maybe even in your family that doesn't know Jesus? Pray about them. And I'm encouraging you, I'm challenging you to take a step of faith after prayer and say to God, God, I'm willing to take a chance. I'm willing to make an opportunity to tell that person that I might might have been rubbing elbows with for years at work that there's a God that loves them. And I believe when you put God in front of it all, He'll open the doors. But I challenge you today to do that. You can start out in the smallest way, but take a step. Tell somebody about Jesus. Tell them that there's a God that truly does love them. And if they reject you, they reject you. And if they don't show up for church, that's okay. What really matters is how many show up at that party at Revelation 7. Amen? That's what really matters. So if we'll do our part, God's always going to do His. Could we bow our hearts in prayer? Father God, I pray that you would change our hearts. Father, we need to have heart changes. We need to start seeing people the way you see people, feel about people the way you feel about people. And we need to start obeying you to be bold in our faith, to believe that we can make a difference. Father God, I pray that you would take away fear. And I pray that you would encourage each one of us to have a heart to love people enough to tell them about you. Help us to love them the way that you've loved us, unconditionally. And Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to opportunities all around us, at work, at school, at home, in our neighborhoods, communities.
Help us to step out in faith and bring them to you. Because it's all about one question, saved or lost. Do you know Jesus or don't you know Jesus? Father God, I pray that you would lead each one of us to be agents of reconciliation, ambassadors for you, to bring truth and life into the world around us. In Jesus' precious name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. I'm going to dismiss this regular service, but those that are being baptized today, uh, you can make your way to the nursery area, and we're going to have a baptism service in about 15 minutes. God bless you all. Have a great week.